0: You'll join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Continue our series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning we are in chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 16 through 22. The title of the sermon this morning is All Return to Dust. Your key words for the worshipers in training are wickedness, righteousness, and dust. While you're turning there, I want to catch us up on the book of Ecclesiastes, where we've been. As we saw from the beginning, Solomon has been conducting a sort of experiment, spanning the extremes of life. So Solomon sought to find the meaning of life, the purpose of creation, the big question of why are we here? He sought to answer. He thought perhaps it was to find it in wisdom or education. And then he turned to the opposite extreme of folly. He looked in comedy. Perhaps it was laughing. Laughter was the great filler of the soul. He turned to wine and parties and women. He built enormous gardens. He filled his life with material possessions. He sought to find meaning in his toil, his work. He filled his body on food and sex and ultimately on laziness. And we've seen so far that Solomon has lived life in the fast lane under the sun. This statement under the sun that he uses frequently throughout the book. He's seeking meaning in life. He's seeking joy. He's seeking to find some purpose to this thing called life. And he realized... And it was inevitable, as we looked at two weeks ago, that death comes. No matter who you are, where you live, and what you do to sustain your life, ultimately, in the end, death comes. And so it begged the question once more for Solomon, then what's the point? Then what's the point? And he helped us as we began to look A little bit further in his argument, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, he said, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So we see in part Solomon begins to turn his focus from the here and now to the eternal. And then we looked at last week the providence of God. Despite what the 60s band, the birds taught us, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is not about peace, smoking pot, and having flowers in your hair, but rather the reality that a sovereign God providentially orders all things in our lives that come to pass according to His sovereign, wise, and good purposes. Verse 11, he told us, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, additionally, Solomon pointed us to the reality that God has placed eternity into the hearts of man. We saw that also in verse 11. And every one of us longs for life beyond this mortal time, for something greater than this. Everybody, everywhere, longs for that. For something restored to its original beauty, for eternity. And since men fight and strive to fill that void, to fill that longing with all the world can offer instead of the giver, the source of true joy and contentment, we're constantly dissatisfied. We are constantly restless. We are constantly confused. And so we concluded last week, as Solomon led us to see, in Christ we are to enjoy life. How? How do we enjoy life? We rest in a sovereign God. We seek our purpose in Him. We look beyond gifts in this life to look to Him who created all things for His glory and whom we can know in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that sounds great, right? Well, Solomon is a bit stubborn and so he's going to drill for more. So he sort of brings us on a high and then he's going to bring us on a low and we get to see this throughout the entire book. Solomon is looking for loopholes and secret passageways to see if there's another way. Asking some of the most difficult questions of all the scriptures. Seeking to challenge the foundational truth that we've just looked at with the reality of life under the sun. And so now he gets to a place where he's starting to say, if this is true, if God has providentially ordered all things to come to pass according to his good and wise purposes, what about... This. And he's going to present us with a few different options. So, Solomon, in his wisdom and for our benefit, assumes the objections of skeptics and philosophers, for he himself was persistent in ensuring that he left no rock unturned in answering this great question What is it all about? So, remember the sum total of all that Solomon taught in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 is this, namely that if it happens in this life, it happens according to the inscrutable wisdom of God and in His timing, not ours. It is right and beautiful in the big picture when viewed with a wide-angle lens. When we can get the perspective, when we can understand that God sees all things in a way that we cannot we understand that God is at work to bring all things to pass according to His will. So immediately, though, we see Solomon raise objections to his own conclusion. Let's look, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now remember this statement, under the sun, we've seen this time and again. This is living life detached from reality. From the reality that every man, woman, child who dies will stand before God and give account for our lives. So living under the sun is living life based upon the temporary. And it quickly proves to be meaningless. So Solomon raises his objection if it's true that God sends whatever comes to pass in this life, what do we do with the reality that there are things that were created for goodness and righteousness, but goodness and righteousness are not there? What do we do with that? What is is Solomon's problem here? Solomon instinctively longs for justice and as he looks justice is not where it ought to be he raises the objection and we begin with that we that we begin with as people at a very early age and we continue on throughout our life we hear it in children we hear it in adults all the time hey that's not fair that's not fair this is solomon's objection Reality is bound up very tightly in these words, right? We who so desperately long for justice, well, we're very unjust. We are very unjust. And yet, we constantly cry out, that's not fair. As humans, we are sinful, we are selfish, we are bent, we are crooked. Read one newspaper and it will reveal to you that we do horrible, deplorable things to one another. Every one of us has scars from another person. And every one of us has given scars to another person. We are all criminals and we are all victims. So, what have we done? We've organized our societies in such a way that we are able to seek some form of justice. We have courts and judges, we have lawmakers, we have police and prisons and capital punishment and military operations, and the ever-constant threat of retribution. At a minimum, pocketbooks are pegged with fines to maintain an ordered life in society. Now, Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul reminds us that these very things exist and have been instituted by whom? God. Not man, But God, Romans 13 and verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So Solomon says, okay, that's fine, but we see wickedness in the courts. We see wickedness in this justice system. How can it be said that God sits on the throne of high justice... When the judges appointed on earth to reflect that high justice do not bother to do so. How can he be up there when they are down here? Fair enough, Solomon. Often, it can be said that the place of justice is, well, very unjust. This is not just a frustration of Solomon, but indeed it points to genuine evil. Innocent people go to jail, and criminals sometimes run free. You may kill an intruder inside your home and get 20 years in prison, but if you kill an unborn child in the womb, you're protected by law and applauded by activists. Discipline your children according to the wisdom of Proverbs and risk being charged with child abuse. Abuse your child by refusing to discipline them and be celebrated for a flawed understanding of love and compassion. This is unjust. Herein lies Solomon's point. Even though there are systems and institutions established as a means to bring about justice, they too reek of injustice, because the system is only as good as those in charge of implementing it its laws, its policies, and its procedures. And all of us are sinners. So ultimately, sinners don't bring about justice upon other sinners. We can't. We're imperfect. We're flawed. We have mixed motives. We have selfish intentions. So Solomon's frustration is not just that injustice is done but that it goes seemingly without punishment in this world under the sun. Martin Luther wrote of this, he is not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. So when the very seed of justice under the sun becomes corrupted, where can righteousness be found? We'll look at this point again next week as he turns to it in chapter 4. But we cannot linger long on this point without looking to verse 17. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So Solomon quickly reminds himself of his initial premise He applies the spiritual principle of God's providence that we looked at last week to his own situation, to his own question. God's timing, not mine. The ultimate check God provides against the wickedness of injustice is a knowledge of the final judgment that has not yet come. The last judgment is very much in view throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And it puts every injustice in its proper perspective. If there's truly a time for everything under heaven, as he told us in verse 1 of chapter 3, then there must be a time for justice. Rest assured, justice is not something that God sits idly by and watches happen and not happen. The Bible is infinitely clear that God stands against injustice at every turn. Just read the prophets. They make this abundantly clear. Spend some time considering the books of Amos and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Micah. The message is the same. God hates injustice and He will do something about it. All of this proves to us that we can rest assured. Genocide, terrorism, slavery, sex trafficking, abortion, all of this will eventually come to an end. For who can stand against the justice of God? No one. Not one. But Solomon's frustration under the sun is that he could not bring an end to the opposition now. But rather than being defeated, he points us to God. God who makes all things right in the end. Now, as we say that, we must realize there is a time for us to pursue justice in whatever ways that we are able. The Lord requires it of us. And as God's people, we're called to do what is right in the church, in our homes, and in society. Micah 6 8 tells us, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God? But in all the situations that we do not have the power, we do not have the authority, we do not have the wisdom to resolve, God will see in his timing that justice is done. Our confidence must never rest. This is very important. Our confidence must never rest in earthly laws, legislation, or the justice system. But our confidence must rest fully in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. We will not ultimately bring about godly justice through laws and legislation. It will come about only at the hand of God in the final judgment. God has promised a day when his son will judge the righteous and the wicked The time for his work of divine retribution is the day of judgment when he will render his final verdict on all mankind. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Indeed, the wicked will be punished forever and the righteous will be comforted by the Spirit of God who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We can rest assured with expectation for that great day. But this requires faith in God's promise and the patience to wait on God's timing. If justice seems like it's a long time coming, we should believe the words of the prophet Habakkuk who instructs us, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not Delay. God's justice is sure. We must rely fully and faithfully upon that great truth, that great reality. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they might see that they themselves are but beasts. So now Solomon returns to an earlier theme that we looked at a few weeks ago death. The pigs, the dogs, and the goats will all bite the dust just like you and I. And the Lord makes sure that we see it. So on what basis can we look at them and say there's a difference between them and us? At first, Solomon's comparison to animals may seem unbiblical, like something an evolutionist might say. After all, we know from the scriptures that mankind is only a little bit lower than the angels. We have all the animals under our dominion. We're created in the image and likeness of God. Doesn't all of this distinguish us from every other creature in the world? Yes, of course. Man knows that he is in a separate category from the animal altogether. But Solomon's not merely commenting on our biology. He's talking about our destiny. Now, in the final analysis, science can only measure how fast our bodies rot in the ground but knowledge of the final judgment and how men as men will stand before the great throne does not come from dissecting a frog in science class. So because of their ignorance of the reality of the final judgment, they quickly respond, fine. Man is no different from the animals and every life everywhere is on the same level. So interestingly... They urge us to save the whales, like as if we were in charge of them or something. The irony is hilarious. The uniqueness of man cannot be denied. It cannot be made to disappear. Men will always be men, but apart from an acknowledgement of man's final judgment, they cannot hope to give a reasonable account of themselves as men. But truly, what Solomon says is right. Men are beasts. He's making a specific comparison here. Look at verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. So here, Solomon makes one of the Bible's strongest statements regarding the inevitability of our death. His point being, people die just like the animals. Now, yes, there are many differences between us and the animals, but this is very much in common. Man or beast, our fate is the same in regards to our physical bodies. Like us, animals have been given life And breath from the Creator. Like us, their life is short. Like us, their last breath will come too, and they too will return to dust. So, using this language, Solomon reminds us of God's curse against Adam's sin Dust we are, and to dust we shall return. As my two-year-old daughter might sing, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And at this level, we resemble the beasts. Psalm forty-nine, twelve: man in all his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So we have to ask the same question that we looked at two weeks ago. What is your response to the inevitability of your death? It's coming. Some fear death. Others long for it. Some attempt to mask their uncertainty with humor. The comedian Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But perhaps since all men die, truly, life is vanity. For Solomon, for a moment, for just a moment, one verse, the final judgment seemed to solve Solomon's dilemma of injustice. But it was only temporary. This answer created another question. The delay of divine justice and the reality of his coming death brought Solomon right back to where he began vanity of vanities. It's meaningless but he knew there was one thing that could make a difference in the face of death. Look at verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The ultimate question for Solomon The ultimate question for you and for me, what happens after the dust? What happens after we die? For Solomon, the reality was, even if it's true that our bodies will return to the dust, maybe our souls will go on forever. If so, that will clearly distinguish, in Solomon's mind, man from beast also gives us an assurance of justice. If there's no life after death, there's no freedom from despair. But if there is life after death, there's great freedom from despair. So Solomon seems a bit unclear about this question. He asks, who knows? He asks the agnostic question, can we really be sure? How can we know for certain that death isn't just the end? How can we know that there's something beyond this life? It's a great question. I will argue that historically, mankind has sought to answer this question of life after death in four main ways. And I want to look at those four ways. First, there are those who will say, nothing. Nothing happens after death. Theologically, we call this annihilationism that we die and we're simply annihilated. Our bodies return to dust, we become worm food, and that's that. We die. It's over. No heaven, no hell, no nirvana, no purgatory, nothing. You just cease to exist completely. Now, there are truly not many people who hold to this view in the world. Most people have some view of life after death. And I argue that all men really do because of what we learn in Ecclesiastes 2.11, that eternity is in the hearts of man. But, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness and simply conclude on their own, nothing happens, we turn to dust. Now, obviously, biblically and even philosophically, there are some major problems with this conclusion. Not the least of which is that this is the biggest gamble you can take in all the universe. If you're wrong, you are really, really wrong. And I'm about to tell you that you are. Secondly, second view, reincarnation. This is the idea that men and women die and they come back in various forms to try and make right what they did wrong the first time. So maybe you come back as a man, or you come back as a butterfly, or a flower, or a Komodo dragon. They continue into this cycle until they get it right, and then nirvana The problem is, Flower had a hard time remembering how they got off track and upset someone's feng shui when they were a spider. So learning from past failures is impossible. And seeking to do it perfectly is like handing me a basketball, putting me in an NBA finals game, and telling me to knock down 30 points and 10 assists before halftime, and I don't even know where to stand when my team has the ball. Everyone who believes in reincarnation will say, "I don't know what I was before." Oh, OK, so you're doing better now, even though you didn't know what you did or were then. How? This is hopeless. It's foolish, and it it's very, very sad. Third is the idea of scales. This is what the majority of the world believes. This is what the majority of world religions teach. And sadly, this is what many, many, many American evangelicals believe. You die, I die. We go stand in front of God who weighs our good and our bad deeds in a giant scale. We bite our nails, our knees quiver, and we wait for the verdict, hoping... Just hoping the good outweighs the bad so we can get some kind of reward. More good rewards, more bad punishment. Here's the problem with that. And I would argue this is worse than either of the other two ideas I just mentioned. This makes God a wicked and unjust judge. Let me give you an example. Think of a man who rapes and murders his neighbor, dumps her body in the ocean out of no other reason but pure hatred. But he coaches Little League. He's a member of a church. He's been in the Rotary Club for 20 years. What kind of community is going to put up with a judge who looks at this man's life and says, well, he's done more good than bad. He's free to go. He coached Little League. Who's okay with that? Nobody. Nobody is. This is not a good or just judge. The crime must be punished despite anything else that may look to be good in his life. So the scale theory makes God wicked and unjust. But I'm a good person. Well, there's a lot of good people in hell. So what happens when we die? I'd like to argue that the only logical, sound conclusion is the biblical one. A good, holy, perfect God judges every single sin ever committed on the face of the planet and therefore leaves every single one of us deserving of his wrath, right? If God is perfect, God is just, Therefore, every single sin must be punished. Not one can go unpunished. As soon as sin goes unpunished, God is no longer just. That's why our boy Solomon has such a hard time looking at the justice system. Why, if God is sovereign and just, do I not see justice? It's coming, Solomon. It's coming. Now, at I say that, you may be thinking, well... Isn't that a complete contradiction of this whole Christian thing altogether? Isn't that the very thing we talk about when we say we've received salvation? That we are no longer under God's wrath. We're saved from the penalty of our sins. Isn't that the good news? Doesn't that make God unjust to leave my sins unpunished? And therein lies the problem with that reasoning. A Christian sin does not go unpunished. It's simply punished in someone else on our behalf. It's punished in Christ. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So there are two ways to live under the reality of a sovereign, just, and perfect judge. Either we stand on our own and receive the penalty of our sin, or by God's grace, Christ does so for us. Listen, when, when it comes to what happens after we die, we don't need to guess. We need to know the truth. Solomon rightly claims in verse 17, the righteous and wicked will be judged. And Jesus says very clearly by his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his burial and his resurrection, he says, for my people, the debt is paid in full. I'm the judge and I pay the penalty for my sheep. There's no reincarnation. There is no karma, no cycles of progress and regress. There's death and there's judgment. The question is, how am I going to be judged? not by my works, not by my religious devotion, not by a magical prayer or some obedient deeds. Either I am in Christ and he has received the penalty for me or I stand alone and will be judged eternally in hell. That's it. Some of you have given yourself over to a guess you've guessed that if you're a good person or if you mean well or if you're kind of spiritual and believe in some sort of god that everything will be fine some of you have just assumed that one day you'll die and it'll all be over and we'll figure out whether or not this whole thing is true or not it'll come to an end but it's just a guess For anyone who does not believe Jesus' words, that He is God in the flesh, who has come to judge us, and who has all authority and power to do so. If you do not believe that now, you will believe it in the moment you take your last breath. Because you will see Him, and you will be naked and ashamed. And you may cry out, this world was sinful, this world was evil. I was oppressed, I was hurt, I was a victim. And he will show you every time you oppress someone else. And all the times you harmed someone else. And he'll show you that you've caused many tears. He will state the plain, obvious fact that you're not just a victim. You're also a criminal. And you have committed high treason against the creator of the universe. Listen, if you are not in Christ, I am pleading with you this morning. Do not take a guess at this. Do not seek to stand before God on your own merit. You will be guilty as charged. Flee to Christ. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Walk in the newness of life. Resting in the finished work of Jesus on behalf of his own. For the believer, we do not cower in fear or run and hide at the final judgment. Our day of judgment was at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there he purchased me. And when he saved me, he counted me righteous because of all that he did. I didn't want him. I wasn't searching for him. I wasn't seeking after him. But while yet his enemy Christ died for me. So now I'm not stuck in a trap of works trying to clean myself up and hoping God will be happy with me. I admit freely that I'm broken. That I'm messed up. That I have a wicked heart with evil intentions. And I'm relying fully on him to make me clean. To give me a new heart with new desires to live for his glory alone, not my own. To love and to serve others, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. He does that, not me. I need Jesus to get me beyond the grave, and you do too. Solomon asks at the end of verse 22, Who can bring us to see what will be after him? Who can do it? Jesus can. Jesus will. Trust him. Love him. Lay yourself bare before him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so as we're about to sing, in Jesus, death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. So again, Solomon points us to this great reality. Let's live life. Let us live life. Let us enjoy the good gifts of God in the fullness of Christ for His glory and for our great and lasting joy. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the opportunity With united hearts to proclaim that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And that apart from him, there is no hope, there is no assurance, there is no rest, but only toil, only madness, only judgment I pray God that you would awaken the dead this morning those who are dead in their transgressions and sins I pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and grant them new life in Christ Jesus our Lord that they would cling to the great truth that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Call them unto yourself, O Lord. Awaken them to see, to hear, to understand, to love Christ. To not seek to clean oneself up, to run to Christ. But to come dirty, broken, ashamed, knowing that it is in Christ alone that we receive cleansing, nourishment, refreshment, ultimate, lasting joy. Lord, help us to live life in Christ for your glory. Help us to come to you not as if we have something to offer, but with empty hands seeking to be filled. Give us more of you, O Lord. Help us to rest more fully on your promises and to delight in the reality that while we may see injustice and evil and wickedness and unrighteousness in this world, in this life, that justice will come, that your enemies will be placed under your feet, that we will sit at the banquet table with the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ every pain will be taken away, every tear removed from our eyes, and that we have the great opportunity to live and dwell with Christ Jesus, our Lord, forever and ever. You are good to us, O oh Lord, and we thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would press this word in on our hearts and help us to dwell upon the reality of our own death, the nearness of our of the end of this life and our great responsibility to live in whatever we do to your glory. Help us, Lord, to give ourselves most fully to the proclamation, to the living out of the implications of the gospel, that you would be glorified in the nations, your people would rejoice in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.